Good to be with you guys. Glad you guys are here tonight. I have a quick question for you. This is not like a, hey, I want you to really ponder this. This is like a, I'm about to use an illustration. I'm afraid I'm going to use the wrong word and make a fool of myself. When you ride a bike, do you call that uh, cycling or biking? Cycling. Cycling. Okay. So my... Okay. Oh, gosh. I did not know this was like hot take. Okay. Okay. We're going we're gonna to go in the middle of it. Okay. So my wife, she's really into bike cycling. okay? She does a lot of bike cycling. And uh, one of the things uh, Amy loves to do, one of her favorite things to do is to ride her bike, whether that's, some would say she's cycling when she's doing that. Some might say she's biking. But whatever you call it, that's what she does. Uh, we live actually, we live right here in this neighborhood, Parkview, uh, right behind us, and there is actually a, a trail that runs from our neighborhood to Boomer Lake, Kamioka Trail there. And so she can literally just ride down the street, get on that, and ride over to Boomer and, and ride uh, around that few laps. That's one of her favorite things to do in, in the morning if she doesn't have a lot going on, if it's not crazy, and if we're able to get the kids to school and all this stuff without too much insanity, um, then she, she loves to go ride her bike around Boomer, except for this one part of it. Uh, there is this one section of it, it's actually on the east side usually, although sometimes that changes, but usually on the east side, the kicker side, as she's riding along, uh, if she is heading south on that with kicker on the left as she goes, uh, there is almost always this incredibly intense like headwind that is blowing like directly in her face the entire time she's doing it. Those of you guys who, who run Boomer or who bike Boomer, you might know uh, a little bit about this. Sometimes if the wind shifts, it's over along Lakeview as you're going along the bridge there. And, and she complains about that. She'll come home talking about, you know, certain days. Dude, the wind was crazy today. It was like, it was like pedaling just to keep moving forward and not fall over, pedaling with all my might to get there. And so she loves to ride her bike, hates this one specific side of Boomer. Here's my question for you, and this one is not whether it's biking or cycling. This one's a think about it question. Is that headwind on the east side of Boomer Lake when my wife is riding, is that headwind a good thing or is it a bad thing? Is it good or bad to ride into wind that almost knocks you over or can take your breath away with the cold as you're moving, depending on what season it is? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Of course, ah, there you go. Okay, so the, the answer to that question is it depends on what you're doing. It depends on what the whole goal is. If the goal of, of that whole bike ride there is just a leisurely ride around the lake to kind of enjoy yourself and just take in the sights and all those things. And that, that headwind's a really bad thing. It's annoying, it's frustrating, it gets in the way of what you're trying to accomplish, which is just have a nice leisurely ride and enjoy uh, the day. Uh, but, but if actually, if the point of riding that bike is uh, increased fitness and strength, if the point of doing that is, is being healthy and staying in shape, that headwind is a hard thing that headwind is not a fun thing. That headwind is not an enjoyable thing, but it's actually a good thing. And it all depends on what the goal is of what you're doing. Uh, we're in 1 Peter, and we have made it through the first three chapters of this book so far. So we're jumping into chapter four tonight. But if you've been with us from the beginning, you know that there's actually kind of a number of different themes that play out in this book. Uh, and there's one big one. 
uh, that, that I, think, I, I think I would say is probably the key. It's, the theme is, is trying to answer this one big question, uh, probably the overarching question of the book. How should we live as people who are in the world but do not belong to the world? As people who are surrounded, we live in the same place that everyone else in the world does, but we don't quite belong to it. Peter actually says this from the very first verse. We get to know that, oh, that's where we're going here. Very first verse, he says, Peter, an apostle of the Lord, to thee, and he calls them to those chosen living as exiles. So to those chosen, that means you don't belong to the world because you belong to God. And then he says, living as exiles, that is, you live in this world, but from the day you got baptized, when you came out of the baptistry, you came up as a foreigner. As the moment you came up, you came up as an exile, as an immigrant in the world that you now live in, because now your home resides somewhere else. And you're going to feel it, Peter says. You didn't have to tell them. Many of them are feeling it already, that they are now different and that they don't quite fit and connect in. And so how do we live in this world as people who don't necessarily belong here? And that means that actually one of the sub-themes of 1 Peter, and this one comes up a ton, is suffering. Because if people do not belong in this world and are trying to live for a king, Jesus, who is not sitting on like a physical throne here, then they're going to be opposed. Uh, you're going to face resistance in a world that does not submit to Jesus when you try to submit to Jesus. Now, that can be true for any follower of Jesus, but that's especially true for these people who are facing like physical persecution, who are facing social marginalization, who are being pushed out of the circles that they were in and disconnected from family. They're facing a lot of that. And so Peter talks a lot about suffering. But every time he does it, he tries to draw them back to this idea of Jesus as the model and motivation for suffering. That just so you know, you are not facing anything new. Jesus did this first. Jesus went through this first. We actually saw this last week. Alec was uh, walking us through uh, the end of chapter 3. And after Peter talks about the importance of suffering for doing what is good. He then turns us to 1 Peter 3.18, and he says these words, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And that actual kind of idea he's talking about, you need to know you suffer because Jesus did. He suffered for all of us. That's the verse that, is, uh, that Peter is launching from in our text today. Okay, that's the verse that, that dives us into chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, okay, anytime you see therefore, we've talked about this, you look back. What is, what is he referencing? What is he connecting? It's, it's chapter 3, verse 18. In light of what I just said in 18, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding. Because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin in order to live the remaining time in the flesh no longer for human desires but for God's will. So he says, look to Jesus who suffered for us and take that mindset on yourselves. Actually, he doesn't say take that mindset on yourselves. What does he say? Arm yourselves with this mindset. One of Peter's understandings is that the world, as you go through the world, you are not going through this um, in a world that is neutral and in a spiritual realm that is neutral, that you are opposed, not just by 
people who may not agree with you, but that there are actually spiritual forces at work against you. And so he says, you need to be ready for this. Arm yourselves with this mindset, with the attitude of Jesus. Now, what is the specific mindset of Jesus that he's talking about? What specific attitude is he talking about? He actually told us about this. Uh, Back in chapter 2, he gave us a specific kind of thinking of Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 23. Here's what that says. When he was insulted, that's Jesus. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So he says is the attitude of Jesus that you need to arm yourself with is that you, you need to feel no need to retaliate. You need to feel no need to rise up in anger or vengeance. What Jesus did, even as he faced unfair suffering, he entrusted himself to his father, trusting that he will make things right, trusting that he will vindicate him. And he says, you arm yourself with this same attitude. Now, that part makes sense. Here's the part of that verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, that's kind of weird. He says, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. The one who suffers in the flesh, who suffers in their body, is finished with sin. What does that mean? Does does that mean, is Peter getting at that if I suffer, if I go through painful things, I won't sin anymore? Obviously, that's not what he seems to be talking about, but he, he needs to be getting at something here. So what is he talking about? First of all, it's it's important to kind of note this. The phrase done with sin, one commentator says, it's not so much about a life of sinlessness. It's about a life of obedience. That's what he's referring to. He's not talking about if you suffer and go through hard things, you'll never sin again. You'll become perfect. You'll never have hard things. But what he says is actually that a person who goes through those things, actually this leads to a greater ability to obey, a greater ability to be faithful, even though there will be failures along the way. But obedience becomes a more important thing. Um, When we are willing to suffer through pain or discomfort, particularly for Jesus and on his behalf, it begins to sever the nerve center of sin within me. It begins to take some of the control that it has because sin is often the result of me seeking comfort or pleasure or the thing that I want. And so when I am willing to go through things, when I'm willing to say no to myself, to die to myself, when I'm willing to put those things aside at great cost to myself, what that begins to do is it kills off that thing inside of me that always wants what it wants. And I begin to uh, be strengthened. I begin to grow. That's what Peter can say to them. When you get mocked for what you believe, when you get persecuted for trying to be faithful to Jesus, when you give up comforts, when you spend your money for things that are in the kingdom and you begin to like not be as rich as people around you because you're giving to bigger things, that's like riding your bike into a headwind. It's not fun. It's not easy. But the goal of your life is not leisure. And therefore, suffering isn't necessarily a bad thing all the time. I'm not saying we should try to suffer. I'm not saying it's a good thing. But if the goal of your life is comfort and ease and leisure, then suffering is always only bad. If the goal of your life is to become like Jesus, then God can take even the hard and bad things in your life and use them for your good. And that's what he seems to be talking about here. We're going to talk more about suffering next week. He'll, he'll kind of dive into that. And so we'll, we'll jump into some other things uh, for, with the rest of our time tonight. Look at verse 3. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do. 
carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. So Paul, Peter says, hey, it's good for you to be freed from sin because there's already been enough time spent doing those things. At first, this statement sounds a little bit uncompelling or at least overly simplistic. Why should you stop sinning? Peter says, because you've already done enough of that. So stop it. Stop that now, Okay. No, no more that. You've done it enough, all right? Uh, it, I had an RA back in college who used to, one of his favorite phrases, whenever he would catch somebody doing something dumb or against the rules in the dorm, he liked to just say, hey, you know what? How about instead of let's do that, let's not do that, okay? That was like his, that was his thing. He, like, he, would, he would come and see in the room and be like, hey, how about instead of let's do that, let's not do that. Uh, and that's what it kind of sounds like Peter is saying here. Hey, how about instead of let's sin, let's not sin, Okay. <laughs> Uh, that's what it kind of sounds like, almost as overly simplistic. But the more I've actually looked at this line, the more I've realized there is a simple beauty to what Peter is saying when he says those things. Uh, basically, he's getting at this idea, however long you spent living for yourself and not for God, however long in your life you spent chasing after sinful things, However long you spent given over to those passions, whether it was six years or 16 years or 26 years, whether it was a couple months, whether this happened before you knew Jesus or after you knew Jesus, however long you spent chasing after those things is too long already. Aren't you tired of it? Aren't you sick of it? Don't you, don't you see what that did for you? Can't you see that Jesus is so much better, that he's worthy of so much more? It doesn't matter how long you spent doing it. It's too long already, Peter says. So let us shift over to something that is greater and better than our sins and our past things. But he does this really interesting thing, this subtle thing that you might not notice. What does he call sin, actually, when he says you, you were living in sin? He actually uses this phrase here. He says that there's already been enough time spent doing what the Gentiles choose to do. That's kind of interesting because he says Gentiles in third person. But who is he writing to? Gentiles. He's actually writing to Gentiles, but he talks to them like they're not Gentiles. And that's because Peter would, would sort of say they're not. I mean, yes, of course, by blood they are, but, but actually he says you're a, you're a brand new thing. You are not the people who, who for years and years were against and did not belong to God. Even though you may be Gentile by birth, you are now Christian by new birth. You are now something new entirely. And all the things that, that used to be you, that's not you anymore. And so you don't have to live in that. This is a really beautiful truth. Whatever you used to be, whatever behaviors used to dominate your life, whatever habits or sinful things used to kind of control you and felt like it defined you, if you are in Christ, no longer defines you anymore. It's not who you are. It's not who you are. You are now the chosen exiles of God. You are now sons and daughters of the king. You are now part of God's people. It says, don't live like them anymore. And then in verse, verses 4 and 5, he says, they, that's the Gentiles, your neighbors, your friends, are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. So he says, you used to live like your neighbors. You used to live like your family members. You used to engage in all the same things, the, the drunkenness and the sexual sin and, and all of these kind of crazy things before. And, and now you've changed, and there are people around you who that's kind of thrown them off. They're surprised by this. What's, what's going on? 
And then there are some people who aren't just surprised, they're, they're mad. They're angry about the change that they see in you, and so they mock that. They slander that. And they, they spread all kinds of rumors about you. There sometimes our transformation, whenever you, and maybe you've experienced this, if you came to Jesus like later in your life as a teenager or maybe in college, there's sometimes the change in your life actually draws people in. And, and people can tell that there's something different about you. And it's, it's kind of attractive. It's like, wow, what, it, what is it about him or her? There's so much more kind. There's so much more loving. And it kind of draws people. But, but there's a lot of times when the change in us uh, doesn't just draw some people in. It also creates tension with other people, with people that we spent a lot of time with. Maybe you've experienced that too. You've changed, your friends say. What's wrong? You've changed. You think you're better than us? holier than thou, that you've got your stuff together now, you're too good to hang out with us now, you're, you're too good to go do the things that we used to do. Maybe you've felt some of that with friends or uh, roommates or, or maybe even family members who go back home and, and weirdly enough, you thought they'd be excited about the change in you and yet they seem to kind of resent it. Maybe because it makes them feel uncomfortable. Maybe because it shines a light on something that they don't want to think about. But, but Peter says when that happens... And in their cases, they're not just getting people with tension. They might be getting people who are actually um, tearing them down and maybe even, maybe even physically attacking them. He says, when that happens, you don't retaliate. You don't have to lose hope because you know that this life is not all there is. He says, one day, those people who slander you will give an account to the one who judges the living and the dead. One day, they will stand and they will speak to God about the way that they treated you and treated others. Quick side note on judgment. Um, it's something that's come up before in this letter. Uh, Peter's talked about a couple different times. Judgment in the Bible, God's judgment, used to be a lot more popular topic in churches. Uh, probably, honestly, before probably most of you, maybe any of you were born, it was a big deal. It was a much bigger deal to talk about judgment and wrath and, and hellfire and brimstone and you need to repent because God's going to get you and those kinds of things. And I was really just barely kind of on the tail end of that um, when I was, you know, I was a, a, a young kid in the 80s and 90s and uh, back last century uh, before many of you guys were born. Uh, but, but that used to be a much bigger thing. A lot of times at the expense of talking about God's love and his grace. And for many people in the church, growing up in the church, God became nothing more to them than like a, a powder keg of anger that I'm supposed to kind of tiptoe around. Otherwise, he may come and get me. He may come and smite me. That's what God would do. He would smite. Um, that he may, he may lash out at me anytime. And I'm always like in danger of hell. I'm always in danger of angering God and having him against me. And this began to be a, a pattern in a number of churches. And eventually people saw that. And, and partly as our culture shifted, but partly they saw the error of this. And so the church began to push back against this. But what actually happened is, is we kind of went all the way to the other side. And we ended up actually losing some things that were true over here. And we came to a place where we were actually, uh, there are probably few things that are more almost embarrassing as a Christian to talk about than the judgment of God. I know for me, as, as, a, as a preacher, teacher, as a minister, that's not something that I like to talk about a whole lot. It's something that, that just sounds, you know, judgy. 
Um, and, and so we, we can get almost embarrassed and almost try to overlook those kinds of the Bible. You should know this. The early Christians and the New Testament writers were not embarrassed about this. They were not embarrassed about the fact that God will judge all people one day. And part of that's because they were living in a time when they were getting their teeth kicked in. And they were living in a time when they were constantly, many of them, harassed and persecuted. And they or their family members were getting thrown in prison. And they and their family members were getting gossiped about. And there had to be times in the lives of these Christians that Peter's writing to that they wondered, is this what I signed up for? Is this like what my life is? And is this actually worth it? Is this just how it's going to be for us? I think one of the reasons that we sometimes get queasy about the idea of judgment and don't like it is because we are today so insulated from the injustice that our brothers and sisters around the world face often, even today, that many of our brothers and sisters faced faced for a long time throughout church history and many still do today. And so because life is kind of easy and comfortable and we don't have to go through that much, why is judgment really a thing? It seems kind of unnecessary, but for a lot of our Christians, our Christian brothers and sisters, they... they, uh, They live in a world where things are not right. They long for a day when it will be made right again. And it's not just Christians. And there are so many injustices that go around in the world today. Did you know that this year, just in Ukraine alone, 6,490 civilians have been killed this year? Not soldiers. Uh, Moms and their little kids and grandmas and grandpas have been killed this year. Some 14 million of them have been displaced from their homes. That's one-third of the Ukrainian population has been displaced from their home this year. Did you know that every year, some one million kids will be trafficked in the global sex trade? And I'm just telling you that I don't want a God who winks at that. I don't want a God who shrugs at that, who will one day, when Vladimir Putin or Adolf Hitler stands in front of him, will one day just say, ah, shucks, you know, we all make mistakes, so no worries. No, no, I want a God who, when someone destroys innocent lives like that, with no problem and does all kinds of terrible things, I want a God who who will look at slave traders one day at the end of time and will make things right The Bible says that he is not a God who winks at bad things, that he will right every wrong one day, including the terrible things that have been done to you. That one day, someday you, sometimes you may wonder why I went through this and it doesn't seem like anything happened to the person who did these things. God will right everything wrong that has been done to you one day, but God will also right every wrong that you have done one day. And this is where it can get a little bit scary because when it comes to judgment, I might like the idea of him judging like Putin and Hitler, but I kind of want him to only judge like the really bad things, not like the normal bad things that I do. But the thing is, I don't get to draw the line on that. If God is judge, then he is judge. And he will judge all things, not by Drew's standards, but by his perfect and holy and righteous standards, which means we're all in trouble. Because all of us will be accountable for the things that we said or do. And that is why I'm so grateful for verse 6, which says this. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. He says, for this reason, that is, he's, he's 
jumping back to this idea that we will all give an account to the one who judges the living and the dead for this reason, because everyone's going to have to answer to God, for this reason, the gospel was preached. For this reason, the gospel came and was preached to people. The, the, the listeners of Peter, the readers are probably asking, okay, if all of us have to give an account, what happened to, to my mom who just died a couple months ago? And she followed Jesus. She was trying to do these things. But is she now like standing in judgment because she, she died, which, which maybe that means God wasn't happy with her? What happens to my aunt or my uncle or my friend who was in the church and they died? Was that God's judgment or are they facing that judgment now? And, and Peter says, no, 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 here's the thing you need to know. Yes. Everyone will give an account, but those who have placed their faith in the gospel of Jesus, this truth that the very Son of God came to live on this earth and then die for your sins in your place, they don't face the condemnation for their sins. They don't face the judgment for what they did because God chose to punish all of your sins on Jesus instead when you choose to believe in him. And so Peter says, this gospel was preached to all your friends who were dead. It was preached to them so that they would not have to stand condemned for the things that they've done. And by the way, this whole idea of people who slander you facing judgment, Peter doesn't say we stand back and we go, just wait, you'll get yours. No, his whole point is that the gospel will be preached even to those who slander us so that they will not, we will, I believe, all give an account. I will still have to answer to God for the things that I did but I will not have to be condemned for them. This is Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. One of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. There is no condemnation. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how deeply you've sinned, how guilty you feel. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, there is no condemnation for you. And then if you look as we go into verse 7, you'll come across this strange and somewhat ominous statement. The end of all things is near. What does that mean? We're going to do things a little bit different tonight. Usually we spend the first half of the night walking just straight through the text, and then we pause, and we pick something about it, and we walk through, and we talk about that thing. We're actually going to pause right here and take our break, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to finish out this chapter, or not this chapter, but this text, verses 7 through 11 together, and we'll talk about this idea. What does it mean that the end of all things is near? So take a couple minutes. You need to use the restroom, stand, stretch your legs, and we'll get back to it. Okay, so there's this really weird thing that happened at the end of 2012. I don't know how many of you remember it. You would have all been alive, but you would have been most of you like 8 to 10, maybe 11 years old at the time of this. It happened in December. Actually, it, it happened before December, but people were freaking out about December. Is that a bunch of people were studying uh, these Mayan calendars. Do anybody remember this? studying these Mayan calendars that they had found somewhere where the Mayans were, Peru maybe, they're studying these Mayan calendars, and these calendars, these like long-form calendars, went back and, and like tracked history continuously, going back 5,000, I think 5,125 years back, and they went like all the way forward, and they were, I don't know how detailed they were, but they had kind of dates for all this stuff, and and then they found that there was this thing that said that the end of the first great cycle, whatever that is, the end of the first great cycle was going to be on this Mayan calendar, December 21st of 2012. And people lost their minds. 
people begin to wonder, like, what, what in the world is this? What is the first great cycle? And, and what does it mean that it's going to come to an end? And there were all these doomsday scenarios predicting the end of the world, that there were going to be these giant solar flares on that day that were going to come out and, like, burn us up or something like that. There were some people who were saying that there's going to be a planetary alignment that would cause massive uh, tidal catastrophes all throughout the, the Earth, and it was going to flood and ruin everything. Uh, there were some people predicting that the Earth was going to collide, <clears throat> excuse me, was going to collide with, I get, when I think about this stuff, it just really chokes me up, uh, that the earth is going to collide with an imaginary planet called Nibiru. Um, and, and, and there were people who were like totally convinced of these things. They say the sales of survival kits like sword in 2012 uh, because people were ready, right? Getting themselves ready for the end of the great cycle and whatever that was going to mean for them. There's one guy in China who famously built his own ark in 2012 uh, so that while all the rest of us suckers were drowning at the bottom of the flood, he was going to be up there on his ark. Uh, and then December uh, 21 of 2012 rolls around and nothing happened. Nothing happened at all. This isn't the only time that a prediction like this has been made, though. Actually, the year right before this, in 2011, there's this famous radio preacher, is maybe a loose word to describe this guy, famous radio teacher by the name of Harold Camping, and he had this giant radio empire called Family Radio. Um, and he made a declaration. He believed, as he began to do, the, do this do this kind of weird math, that on May 21st, it's always the 21st, I don't know what it is. On May 21st, 2011, the end of the world would come. And the math he did as he began to read through the Bible and started to crunch these numbers, we're going to put math in scare quotes, okay? The math that he did, um, he, he did some stuff, and he calculated, again in scare, scare quotes, he calculated that May 21st was exactly 7,000 years after the biblical flood. Which, A, I don't know how he got that number. B, I don't know why that was significant. But it was significant. And on May 21st, 3% of the world's population was going to be raptured away. And then the rest of the world would suffer through a series of natural disasters, earthquakes and tsunamis and tornadoes and all of these things. And then eventually, months after that, the entire earth would be destroyed. And they spent, actually, camping in his radio group, Family Radio, spent... A, uh, $100 million to get the word out on this. Uh, they were broadcasting, obviously, on radio. They paid for thousands of billboards around the world in different languages. They created all these pamphlets. They went on a like, giant tour with these like, five different trucks all the way around uh, America, North America, passing out pamphlets and talking to get the word out so people would know. And then on May 21st, rolled around at 6 p.m. I think that was supposed to be the time, 6 p.m., and nothing happened. And the next day, Harold Camping came out and was like, uh, I, I did the math wrong, you guys. Forgot to carry the two. And actually, October 21st is going to be the end of the world for reals this time, guys. And told everybody October 21st. And so people went in on that, and then nothing happened. And people got really invested in this one. There were people who gave thousands and thousands to this campaign. This one guy in New York spent $150,000 of his savings to pay for posters and subways. There were people who sold their homes either to help pay for this or to go live it up because what does it matter? I'm not going to need a home after May 21st anyway. 
There were people who racked up all kinds of credit card debt because I'll never have to pay it back, Visa. Um, and so like they, they did all of these crazy things and it all came to nothing. This was actually not the first time that Harold Camping had predicted this. Uh, in 1992, he wrote a book called 1994, question uh, mark. And I think the reason he entitled it 1994 is because uh, he wasn't totally sure because Harold Camping, over the course of like a few decades, predicted the end of the world 12 times. And none of, none of it ever happened. In the 1500s, this uh, respected German mathematician, Johann Stoffler, who was also an astrologer, predicted that a great flood would cover the world on February 25th, 1524, when all the known planets would be in alignment under Pisces, which is a water sign. And so he's like, that totally means something. We're all going to be flooded. And a lot of people bought into it. And then on February 25th, nothing happened. In 1910, when Halley's Comet, which comes by, I think, every 78 years, 76, 78 years, something like that, was coming through like into Earth's orbit there, passing by, um, there are a lot of people who predicted it was going to brush by so close that it was actually going to hit Earth and destroy it. Or there are a number of people who believe that Halley's Comet was like filled with all these poisonous gases, and it was going to like crop dust us on its way uh, across, <laughs> and just going to like leave us all in that, and we were all going to die, Okay. Um, there were people, people like newspapers re were reporting this. Scientists say we're all going to die when Haley's Comet comes. There's a report that in Oklahoma, okay, Dewey County, northwest Oklahoma, there were some people who tried to sacrifice a virgin to try to avoid the Haley's Comet thing. Yes. Anybody from northwest Oklahoma? Okay. I'm not saying, I mean, I'm not saying anything, but might have been your grandparents. Um, <laughs> people, people were into this. And as you are probably figuring out by now, Halley's Comet came and went, and nothing bad happened. Just this last August, literally just a couple months ago, into September, and I haven't found out what's happened since, but into the first few weeks of September, 20,000 people gathered at a farm in Cambodia because this uh, this politician slash, I mean, he's a politician, but kind of almost like a guru type thing too, started predicting. He said he had this hole in his spinal cord and it was telling him that there's this great hole in our planet system and so that there's going to be a massive flood and the only place on earth that wasn't going to be flooded was this rural farm area. And so people came, like I said, by the thousands, 20,000 people on this farm. And of course, nothing happened. Throughout history, people have pre predicted the end of the world over and over and over again, and every time they've been wrong. So you can see how Peter's statement in this chapter sounds to a number of people like it's a little bit misguided. The end of all things is near, Peter says in verse 7. Especially since apparently... It didn't seem to be all that near. I mean, here we are 2,000 years later and everything continues on as it always has. So the question is, was Peter wrong? Was Peter off? Was he misguided when he said in verse 7, the end of all things is near? And if so, then I think that that would mean that actually most of the New Testament writers were because this kind of talk comes up in like almost every writer's letters in, in the New Testament. Uh, the Apostle John says in 1 John 2.18 that it is now the last hour, he says to his 
to his uh, listeners, that we are in the last hour. Paul will say to the Corinthians that we, the church, are those upon whom the end of the ages has come, 1 Corinthians 10.11. The writer of Hebrews calls the period that he's writing in these last days. In Hebrews 1-2, James also calls his time period, as he writes his letter, the last days, James 5-3. This is all over the New Testament. So, is the New Testament wrong? Did they miss it? Were they misguided? Are they off? I think no. I think that there's something else going on here. And, and, and there are scholars for a long time who really wanted to say, no, they were wrong, they missed it, that's why you can't trust the Bible, all of those things. But I think they misunderstand the way the church, the early church, viewed history. And I think if you look closely enough at the Bible, you can see these things to be true. The early church saw all history as divided by one key event, one key life, one key death, and that is the life and death and then resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so everything else in history hinges on this one moment, hinges on Jesus. And so everything before that moment, everything before that period was the previous days. It was the days of promise. And now everything else after is the last days the days of fulfillment. All of history has been driving towards this one moment of Jesus, and now that moment has come. And so we are in the last part of history, that we are in the last day. Jesus himself actually said, no one will know the time or the hour of his coming. He predicted that. No one will know. He said actually during his earthly ministry that he did not know the time or the hour of his coming. And so it would seem strange to me for the New Testament writers to be predicting the end of time, that they were predicting Jesus' coming when Jesus says no one knows the time or the hour. And by the way, it's still strange to me when people try to predict that. Uh, when you read things online, when you ever, if you ever come across any sort of article about blood moons and violence in the Middle East, and that means that the end is almost here, just feel free to ignore that. Because Jesus did not say, no one will know the hour or the time of my coming, except for that weird guy with the blog in 2022. That guy will know. Uh, no, people will not know. So anyone who starts to predict and say, I know, they're off because Jesus said people will not know. And I don't think that the New Testament writers claimed to be knowing that the end of the world was happening at that time. What they're actually saying is, or they're, they're not saying we know when he's coming. He's coming this week or this month or this year. What they're actually saying, I think, is we don't know. But we know he could come at any time. And that's the whole point. Because he could come at any time and because you and I can't predict that, we ought to be ready. Actually, I think that contrasts pretty strongly with the way that I tend to live, which is that I do know that I know that he's not coming tomorrow. I know that he's not coming next week. I mean, I might not say those things. I might not like, actually like, think that, but, but I live my life as it's a pretty sure deal that Jesus is not coming back next week. And as though he's not coming back Next year, the New Testament writers, Jesus actually himself says that we ought to live with this understanding that no one will know, but that it could happen at any time. And so that we ought to live with this thinking. We are in the last days, however long they may last, another thousand years, another thousand days, another thousand hours. We must be ready for these things. But because I often live with this idea, I rarely think 
about things like the end of days. I rarely think about things beyond this world. I'm often lured into, again, I would not say this if you asked me, but I'm often lured uh, into living as though this world is all there is, as though there's nothing on the other side of it, so I better make the most of the time that I've got here. And the call of Peter and the rest of the New Testament is to live as though this is not all there is, as though there is more beyond this, as though one day Jesus will come and that could happen at any moment and we ought to be prepared. But the kind of prepared, the kind of ready for Jesus to come does not look like uh, selling your home uh, to, uh, because you're not going to need it next week. It does not look like racking up a bunch of credit card debt. It does not look like sacrificing a virgin. Don't do that. So what does it mean to be prepared? What does it mean to ready ourselves for the coming of Jesus? If we live in this critical, significant period of life when Jesus might return and restore slash renew slash undo all things that we know, How then should we live when everything that we've been doing could vanish in the blink? The way we ought to live uh, is, is we ought to live for things that matter. We ought to be about things that will matter and that will last past the point that Jesus comes. We ought to live for eternal things. Peter could say a lot of different things about how you do that about what you should be doing to live a life that matters, to live in preparation for Jesus. But he chooses to settle in on two things. And this is what I want to talk to you about tonight. Two things you ought to do if you believe Jesus may come back at any time. If you believe we're in the critical period of history, two things. The first one is pray seriously. The second one is love fervently. Pray seriously, love fervently. Look at the rest of verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. He says, listen, we don't know when Jesus is coming, but we know that we are at the end point of history, however long that end point may last. And so that requires, Peter said, a clear-headedness that is not panicked by surrounding events, that is not panicked by elections, that is not panicked by things that I hear about in the news, that is not panicked by the way I might be treated by friends or family members who don't like what I'm doing, and is not distracted by the things of the world that so often pull us away, sometimes bad and sinful things, sometimes normal things that fascinate us, and we find ourselves getting more caught up in them than the things of Jesus. We ought to be clear-headed for the sake of prayer, for the sake of doing something very important. There are some 20,000 students over at the campus of OSU. Some 20,000 students. There are more than that, but uh, there there are some 20,000 we calculate that are not connected to Jesus. Uh, of the many students over there, some 20,000 that do not know him, that are not faithfully walking with him at least. And our mission at the table is to reach those students. This is, this is the table mission statement. You've heard us say it before. The, ta- the mission of the table is to reach students with the gospel, making lifelong, life-wide disciples of Jesus. So our heart, our desire, our mission, along with the other campus ministries, so it's not just for us to do this, but for, along with the other campus ministries and the churches, is to see as many of those 20,000 students come to know Jesus as possible, and then to help those students, to help you not just show up at events, but to grow up in Jesus 
to become more and more like Jesus, to be transformed into a brand new kind of person. That is our heart. That is our mission. That is what we want to do here. And can I tell you a secret? We can't actually do that. We don't have the ability. We don't have the capabilities to change people's hearts and to transform them. We don't have the resources. I don't have the leadership skills. You working alongside of us don't have the influence or charisma necessary to be able to fulfill our mission here. We cannot do those things because the mission that we have is supernatural. What we're trying to do is something beyond human abilities to accomplish. And that is why we desperately need to be a people, to be a ministry that is serious about prayer. That is why I need you to be students that are serious about prayer. That's why our staff every week prayer walks the campus asking for God to do work there in mighty ways, in ways that we cannot uh, that, that we cannot control. It's why we pray for other campus ministries, that God will work in them and do those things. It is why one of my biggest prayers this year is that God would stir in us as a ministry, that he would stir in us a passion for prayer. It's why at the end of this evening, we're going to ask you to commit with us next week to praying over our campus and praying over our ministry, to dedicating next week to praying for God to do his things. The church is the one organization in the world that has a mission statement that it knows from the outset it cannot fulfill. Not unless the Holy Spirit empowers us to do those things. We need to be people who are serious about prayer, but man, we are so easily distracted by other things. Oh, that we would be serious about the work of prayer for ministry, for our unbelieving friends, for our unbelieving neighbors, for the mission of God on this earth. There's this guy named E.M. Bounds. He writes a lot about prayer, and he says these words, the gospel cannot live, cannot fight, cannot conquer without prayer. Prayer unceasing, prayer instant and ardent. But the very thing that we are called to do, we will not be able to do without it. If the end of all things is near, then we ought to be serious about prayer. Here's the other thing we ought to be, verses 8 and 9. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. We ought to be serious about prayer, and we ought to be fervent in love. We ought to love one another fervently. Peter says, above all. That's what he says. This is actually a big thing. In Christian virtues, love is always the MVP. It always gets uh, the most talk because love is what models us after God and it displays what we are. It marks us as Jesus' disciples. It's something that makes the world take notice. But he says that you ought to love each other constantly. The word in there is actually, some people translate it deeply, but it's kind of like with effort. So it's not just like love the people that are easy to love. It is, is love with effort. Work hard towards loving one another with fervency in there. And it's interesting. There are a whole lot of different ways that you could describe love. A lot of variations of how you might explain it. But Peter uses this one very specific idea of love. He says this, love one another constantly because love covers a multitude of sins. 
It's not a way you hear love talked about a lot. This is, this is what he means. You want to know what love is? Love is not easily offended or angered. And that might, might be one of the most countercultural lifestyles you could possibly live in 2022. <laughs> to not be easily angered, to not try to show how righteous you are by how mad you get about everything all the time. To not let the words that other people say, either to your face or online or whatever else, to not let those become something that you go to war over. Love covers over a multitude of sins. Love does not hold grudges. As 1 Corinthians 13 says, it keeps no records of wrong. When you wrong me, if I am loving constantly, it means that I will assume the best of you before I jump in and attack. It means that I will be quick to let things slide off my back. It means that I don't stir up dissension by talking about you or by trying to retaliate against you. And if confrontation is necessary, which it is sometimes, it means that I am quick to extend forgiveness. That might be one of the most countercultural lifestyles you could live in 2022. I'll say it again. That's not how this world lives. But Peter says that's one of the most important things you could do if you are serious about the fact that Jesus may come at any point. And he says, he, he says this works out in two different ways. One is in hospitality, that we be the kinds of people who open up our homes to each other and care for each other and that we are generous with our life and generous with our stuff and generous with our food and we are living a life in community together. And then the next thing he talks about is in verses 10 through 11. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the very grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. The other way that we love, that Peter chooses to highlight here at least, is that we use whatever talents or gifts we have to eagerly, quickly, um, happily serve others. To serve each other. Last year we were in 1 Corinthians, so we talked a lot about spiritual gifts. I'm not going to get into it too much here just because of that. But you can know this, that the one thing we know about spiritual gifts is it is something that every one of us receives when we give our life to Christ. The Bible says that all of us have received some sort of gift from the Holy Spirit. But we need to know these things, that your spiritual gift does not belong to you, it belongs to God. Your spiritual gift is not for you, it is for everybody else around you. It was given to you to be used for other people. Peter says, calls us stewards of those gifts, stewards of the gifts of the grace of God. A steward is someone who takes care of somebody else's property for them and uses that for their owner's good, for, for the owner's good, and do those, to do those things. That's, that's what your talents are, the things that you have, the gifts that you've been given by God. They belong to him, and they are meant to be used for him. You are just a steward of those things, and we use those for others. The most important thing you can do with your spiritual gift is not discover it. We talk a lot of times like the most important thing you got to do is discover what is my spiritual gift? How did God gift me? What did he want me to do? Listen, that's a great thing if you get to do that. But far more important than you discovering your spiritual gift is you using your spiritual gift, whether you ever discover it or not. And you may go, I don't know how that works. How do I use my gift if I haven't discovered it? Here's how you use your gift even if you don't know what it is. You serve others 
frequently. And every time you do, every time you greet people at a door at church, every time you set up chairs, every time you work in the nursery, every time you get a chance to stand up and speak, you pray and ask that God would use whatever little things you're doing in this moment to further his kingdom, to build up his church, because the power is not in you to do those things. Those things need to to be from him, and he can take even our small little offerings to do those things. That's what it says in verse 11. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. It should be God speaking through me. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. That is what it is to love as I serve and I serve and I pray as I serve, which brings us back to that idea that we ought to be serious about prayer. We do not know how long we have before Jesus returns. We don't know how long those 20,000 students have on campus before they run out of chances to hear the gospel and the good news of Jesus. We don't know how long before it will be too late. None of us knows how long we even personally have. I might not make it past tomorrow, but we know that we live in the shadow of the most significant moment in history, the coming of Jesus Christ And we know that all history from here on out is driving towards this one key moment, and that is his return to make all things right. And we know that we have the greatest mission on earth, so we ought to love the world without being overly fascinated by it and without living like this is all there is. We ought to be fervent in our love and serious in our prayers. I want to actually have the band come up here and and begin, get ready to lead us in a time of worship As they do, I want to actually invite you to join us, as I said, next week. So we have these, you can't see them because they're kind of behind this little little lip here on the stage, but just behind the stage, there are 133 nails sitting up here on the stage. Here's what we want to do this next week, is we want to ask that you guys would give us uh, 4,000 minutes of prayer over our campus and over this town, and over this ministry next week. 4,000 minutes. That is, we, we do the math there, if any of you guys get it. That's, uh, we need 133 people who will give us 30 minutes to walk across the campus, 30 minutes of walking and praying over our campus next week. Actually, technically, it's, 100, it's 133.33333. So we need somebody to pray for 10 minutes next week. But the rest of you, we need to pray for 30 minutes, okay? Um, and so, so this is what we're asking you to do, is we're asking you to think about doing this and to take this seriously. We'll actually be giving you, if you sign up for this, we'll have a group meet later, and we're going to give you prayer prompts kind of all week long, just a small little thing to pray about each day. And then on Thursday, we want to cover the campus in prayer and to ask that you would give, like I said, just 30 minutes of your time to pray for God to come and do some things that we could not do ourselves. That, that the BCM cannot do themselves, that Chi Alpha and Stumo cannot do themselves. And so uh, what we're going to do is we're going to sing. Don't, don't come get one of these if you're like, ah, maybe I'll do it. I, I, I would really love for you to do this, and you'll grab this. The reason we have nails is because we're talking about in First Peter this idea of looking to Jesus who suffered and being willing to go through even hard things for the sake of him and his kingdom. And so this is just a reminder of what Jesus has done for us and how we want to live for him. And so you can grab this and put this someplace on your dashboard uh, next to your bed, someplace that will remind you to pray each day for the campus. While the band is playing, we're going to sing, 
And any time during those two or three songs we're singing, you can come up and grab one of these. I'll ask that you'll just take one, and then at the end, actually, if there's some more left, I may, if you want to come volunteer for another 30 minutes, um, if there's still someone we haven't gotten them all, come grab some of these, and, and we'll, we'll tell you a little bit more about this at the end. But for now, I want to hand over to these guys and have them lead us in worship. Let me pray, and we'll do it. Dear God, uh, there has already been enough time living for ourselves. There's already been enough time for that. And we don't know how long we have here on this world, but we know, uh, we know that, man, every hour of ours is worth giving to you. And, and I pray, Lord, that you would do this in us. I pray, Lord, what you've heard me ask a lot recently, and that is that you would stir in us a heart for serious prayer and for fervent love that we would love one another deeply and we would love you and your mission so much that we would want to keep crying out to you to help us fulfill it. I pray that you would do that in us tonight, that you would do that in us this next week, that you would hear and respond to our prayers. I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.